when your Lois Lane is your foster sister, it's not like you you don't have a choice. You can't escape it. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for episode two is Daniel Kibblesmith, a five-time Emmy-nominated former staff writer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and a founding editor at the comedy site Clickhole. He has also written for Marvel and DC Comics, most recently at Marvel as the writer of the ongoing series Loki, and he is here with me today to talk about Kurt Wagner, the X-Men known as Nightcrawler. Thanks for dropping in, Daniel. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad that we committed so early to Wagner. Oh, I mean, yeah. How else would you... I mean, Wagner, I guess. I Well, you know, for... 25 years yeah because yeah, i was because I, I was when i was a child i certainly did but it, it he's german i mean we gotta no actually i'm taking pronunciation very seriously here because i know that there are a million comic you know nerds who would get mad at me if i did something wrong so i actually this episode was a real was a real white knuckle kind of moment because i spent at least four or five hours last night um looking at like six different dialects of the Romany language trying to uh, decide how to pronounce Margali Sardosh, which is what I've decided to go with because I think she's French, but I think the name Zardosh is supposed to be Hungarian, except that it seems that Claremont just made it up. So I'm not entirely clear, but that's what I'm going with. You are welcome to pronounce it however you want, because uh, certainly I think I said Zardos my whole life uh, until now. Definitely up until this point. You'll probably hear me use both. So if Chris Claremont um, listens to the pod at any point and would like to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you uh, because I don't actually know if we're pronouncing these characters' names correctly. So please let me know. It's possible he also doesn't know. I mean, there's things that, that have only been in print. Uh, he's never he's never needed to talk about any of these characters uh, at cons in any kind of like consistent way no of course and and also he invented them like 35 years ago so i can't you know like it's entirely possible he's forgotten how he ever meant to pronounce these these names but googling sardosh which is how you would pronounce it if it's hungarian um results only in x-men results about margali sardosh so no that seems tight yeah that seems fairly clean um well it's you know, it's just one of those, just one of those things with the X Men. As I said on, I said on last week's episode that the only one I'm going to continue to mispronounce because I just am, it's Celine because I know it should be Celini, but I can't, I just can't make that work in my head for whatever reason. So we're just, we're just gonna have to roll with that one. And I apologize to my fellow classics majors because they might cringe a little uh, each time I do it. So we are here to talk about Nightcrawler. Um, Nightcrawler is a character that I have always enjoyed, but that I have never had like a deep and abiding passion for. But I know that he provokes an enormous amount of passion in so many fans. And I know he's your favorite. So I'd love to, as sort of our our intro here, hear a little bit about why you love this character and uh, what draws you to him before we segue into the character overview for the newbies and uh, and real heads alike. Sure. 
Uh, well, when you uh, told me that you were doing this podcast and that it was people picking individual characters, I just fully assumed that Nightcrawler was taken already. <laughs> I just because he is so he is so yeah. so beloved, and he's not just my favorite X Men. He is my favorite comic book character. Like he is the avenue through which I started reading comic books. But I got into comic books through video games, mm-hmm. specifically the licensed uh, X-Men arcade game, uh, the six-player Have you heard around. the theme song to this podcast? I have. Yeah, <laughs> I so have. you can it tell that I'm also, I'm also a big fan of the Konami arcade game. Yeah, I think that uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of people, and this is something that you know, you've, you've talked about in, in other episodes, like a lot of X-Men fans came to it through these kind of wild uh, licensing directions because mm-hmm. it was such an explosion at the time. So I n- was never a big comic book reader in my early childhood. I never had Archie uh, or, or uh, anything like that. But uh, I loved video games, and my dad was a big comic book reader, and he had the X-Men classic reprints of mm-hmm. like the Dark Phoenix saga. Uh, so he had some Claremont Byrne back issues and, uh, and the reprints thereof. So we went to the video arcade, and I knew about Spider-Man and Batman and Wonder Woman from cartoon shows and and Burger King cups and things like that. I knew that superheroes were a thing and I knew that they were from comic books, but I didn't really care to know more uh, until I saw Nightcrawler in the video game and it just immediately just broke the mold of what superheroes were and, you know, what they were allowed to be and what they were allowed to look like and what your relationship with them could be. And I think that that is sort of a microcosm of my experience with the X-Men and a lot of people's experience with the X-Men is that these are not square-jawed heroes uh, shaking hands with the police commissioner uh, at the end of the Ruby Spears cartoon. Like, these are a bunch of horny weirdos uh, (laughs) with complicated backstories. (laughs) Absolutely. And I mean, Nightcrawler is sort of the standard bearer there because when he comes in in giant size in 1975 it sort of throws down the gauntlet as to what the mutants can be. And, and because if you look at the, the 60s X-Men, the original team with, you know, Scott and Gene and Bobby and Hank and Warren, uh, and even once Alex and Lorna come into the picture, they're all attractive, conventional looking people. You know, even Warren, who has to hide his big wings growing out of his back, is successful at hiding the big wings growing out of his back. Nightcrawler shows up and it's like, oh, this is someone who can't hide. This is someone who has gone through his life ostracized because he looks like a demon, which is something that the characters in the previous iteration of of the X-Men had never dealt with. And I think that... um, it sets a tone and and there's a there's a lot of reasons why the second genesis team from giant size is what made x-men popular when the 60s x-men book was not enormously popular and i think that part of it is that they are these outlandish larger than life beautiful designs and you know nightcrawler is such an iconic design the dave cockrum costume and the whole look is so striking that they have never managed to put him in another costume and make it stick. Like I was, uh, you know, for, for the first episode, which was about Betsy Braddock, I went through endless costume galleries deciding like what to do for the cover art. 
Sure, yeah. And with this one, I just found a relatively recent image of Nightcrawler in that one look that's the one Nightcrawler look. Because apart from a couple little, sometimes he gets a little more swashbucklery, like he'll put on a headband or like he'll have a bandolier or something. But honestly, it's just this look because this look, it works. You see it and you go, who the hell's that guy? I want to know everything. I mean, he has that appeal. Yeah, it's interesting because the costume doesn't really have to do any lifting because he is physically different. But that being said, the costume is great. Yeah, it and does it, a lot and of it's work. Stuck around. Yeah, it's that that you know, uh, big big pointy shoulders acrobat uh, suit. Uh, you know, like a. It accentuates his pointy ears and the pointy tail, and like it all goes together. You know, yeah, it's, it's like stark really... red where he's mm-hmm. blue. It's really um, good. He's got that. <laughs> He's got that Spider-Man thing where, like, ostensibly he's creepy and he lives in the shadows, but he's also, like, bright primary color. And so cute, yeah. I, I really do think that Nightcrawler and Storm of those Cockrum designs are the two where it was just, like, you know, he caught lightning in a bottle, literally, in Storm's case. But just the sense that they're such striking immediately visible designs that you can put those two characters on anything and people immediately know who they are even if they're not comic book people you know like they're just sort of like oh at the very least they'll go that's the x-men yeah i don't know that they get the same i don't know that he would get the same pop but uh for me colossus is also on that list with i love metal that's exemplified as like strips you Mm -hmm. know that's to me is as iconic as you know, Johnny Storm being on fire represented yeah. by those skinny Those little crosshatch lines. lines, yeah. Exactly. I, um, I think that they're all really great, and that's why the team works. But I just mean, in, in terms of just the visual design itself of, of the costume, those two are really just hard to beat. So that's a great intro, because I do think that for a lot of people, his sort of sense of play and like the fun factor of him and the mystery of him and the fact that he's this sort of, you know, He's creepy and cool, but he's not like an edgelord character. Like he's he's fun, you know. He's no, like yeah, not at all. He's extremely endearing. He's Errol Flynn, but a blue elf, and it's he's he's just a lot of fun. And I think that for a lot of people, that is the entry point. And I think that when they did, you know, for a new generation, I mean, I think for our generation, it was a lot like those video games and things like that, and the cartoon in the early '90s. But then there's a whole other generation of fans who came in via evolution, I think, which I was a little too, it was a little after my time, you know, but in that he was sort of the endearing nerd lead character in the teen story. It was sort of him and Kitty. Yeah, he was the likable low status Mm -hmm. person. And I think that for a lot of people who've come to the to the comics since then, that was their entry point. So it makes sense that he's so beloved. And also, now that I've seen Nick Robles draw him, I think he's hot, which was like not really an issue I had with Nightcrawler before. So that's disconcerting. <laughs> but I'm no, dealing but with I, it. I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's like a field. I think that that Nightcrawler he's supposed being to be hot. hot. No, he's supposed to. He's absolutely supposed overt. to be hot. But I've always said like I don't really get the whole Nightcrawler thing with like the obsession with Nightcrawler. And Nightcrawler is so hot. Now I get it, and it's unfortunate because now, now I too am trapped. In the Nightcrawler, right. in the Nightcrawler <laughs> sex vortex, um, so that's a great moment to, I think, segue into the uh, Cerebro character dossier or character file. I don't know what I'm calling this segment yet. I need to figure it out. There's probably a real Cerebro. There's probably something canonical. 
I imagine that, like, there is. Pull up the file on so and so. Yeah, and and I just like the word dossier, but I don't know if if Xavier would get French with it, so I just don't know. Um, I'll have to look that up. Actually, there's probably something in the really early in like the '60s that I could that I could use. Back when Cerebro just kind of went beep 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 when like a mutant was in the area, and it was like this is yeah. not helpful, Cerebro. Like you're just telling yeah. me that these people are nearby. That's not Cerebro was a smoke alarm, and yeah, the danger room was... was just big saw blades. Was literally just like a gym with with saw blades and pendulums in it yeah so in any case whatever i do end up calling it these segments are intended to help new people sort of understand the always intricate and wildly maze-like backstories of these characters nightcrawler is actually not as outrageous as some of the others um, although his origin story has been retconned a bunch but i've kind of streamlined it in the sense that like we don't need to go over every single iteration of like his escape from the Market circus like we get it you know he got away from the circus like if i wish that writers would look at the previous version of the story before they tell it again and contradict the previous story but you know that's life and i'm hoping you know that even if someone is a more experienced fan that they enjoy these segments uh because Often there's something I had forgotten about or, you know, had never quite noticed when I'm uh, when I'm putting them together that I go, oh, I forgot about this story or, um, oh, I had missed that miniseries or whatever. So uh, I think there's always sort of more more X-Men goodness to discover lurking lurking in the darkness, much like Nightcrawler. <laughs> so like Nightcrawler. so uh, with that, we'll be back in a moment after that segment. X-Men, X-Men. Kurt Wagner, better known as the teleporting superhero Nightcrawler, was introduced in May 1975's legendary Giant Size X-Men 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum, the first new X-Men story since the original book's cancellation in 1970. In the story's second genesis, Professor Xavier travels the world to recruit a new team of X-Men, as the 60s X-Men are being held captive by the living island Krakoa. In addition to bringing in existing characters Wolverine, Banshee, and Sunfire, this story marks the debuts of Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus, who would become three of the most popular and prominent X-Men. Thunderbird, the fourth new character, was always intended to be temporary, and dies two issues later in the new run. Cockrum had previously created the design for Nightcrawler years earlier, first as an idea for a superhero's demon sidekick, and then as a proposed character for The Outsiders a rejected DC Comics book that was to be set in the world of the Legion of Superheroes, on which Cockrum was then the artist. While a few different aspects of the pitch for the Outsiders were incorporated into the character of Storm, Nightcrawler's design was transported wholesale. The major change, because editor Roy Thomas wanted the new team of X-Men to be international and multicultural, was to make Nightcrawler hail from Germany. Nightcrawler first appears in the village of Finzeldorf, pursued by an angry mob intent on killing him, a motif that would recur many times over the years. As a visible mutant with blue skin, a light coat of fur, and a demonic appearance complete with tail, he is a stark departure from the X-Men of the 60s, who have all been able to operate in human society undetected. He's rescued by Xavier, who stops the mob in its tracks with his telepathic powers, and Kurt happily joins a team of heroes who are mutants like himself. After this initial story by Len Wein, along with two further issues for which he did initial plotting, the X-Men were entrusted to writer Chris Claremont, who would go on to write the title for 16 years. Claremont would become the writer most associated with Nightcrawler, as he would with many of the X-Men introduced in the 70s and 80s, and he went on to establish an in-depth backstory for the character. 
In his early years with the X-Men, Kurt uses an illusion-casting device called an image inducer, gifted to him by Xavier, to appear as a normal human when out in public. In 1976's X-Men 98, while using the inducer, he meets his most prominent love interest, the human flight attendant Amanda Sefton. Though he meets her under this false pretense, Amanda is undisturbed by his true appearance, and they soon begin dating, which leads to her being kidnapped alongside him by the supervillain Arcade in issue 123 in 1979. Despite this frightening experience, Amanda continues her relationship with Kurt. Claremont unveils Kurt's backstory in two issues over the course of 1979 and 1980. In Marvel Team-Up 89, Kurt and Amanda again cross paths with Arcade, who has been hired to kill Spider-Man by a circus owner named Amos Jardine. Kurt relates to Amanda that he was once a circus acrobat in Germany, and lived happily there until the American millionaire Jardine purchased the circus and forced him to become part of the freak show. Kurt escaped, and two days later was discovered by Xavier in Vinzeldorf. The rest of the story is told in X-Men Annual No. 4, where on Kurt's birthday he is dragged into an illusory hellscape patterned after Dante's Inferno by the immensely powerful Romani sorceress Margali Sardash, who wants revenge for his alleged murder of her son Stefan. The X-Men and Doctor Strange are brought into this hell to save Kurt by Margali's daughter Germaine, who professes her love for Kurt and protects him from her mother. Doctor Strange uses magic to reveal the truth of what transpired between Kurt and Stefan, in the process revealing the rest of Kurt's backstory. He was discovered as a newborn infant by Margali, lying beside his dying mother. The so-called Witch Queen took the baby home with her and raised him as her own alongside her children Stefan and Germaine, at the Jahrmarkt, a traveling circus where she worked as a fortune teller. Kurt idolized Stefan, who became his blood brother, and at Stefan's insistence Kurt promised that if Stefan were ever corrupted by evil, Kurt would kill him. Years later, immediately before the events in Giant Size No. 1, Kurt met Stefan outside Finseldorf and discovered he had murdered several local children. The two brothers fought, and Kurt accidentally killed Stefan while defending himself. Despairing, Kurt tried to go home to tell their mother what had transpired, but the local villagers found him and, shocked by his demonic appearance, assumed he had killed the children. A mob decided to bring him to justice, whereupon he was rescued by Professor Xavier. Margali, ashamed to have assumed the worst, embraces Kurt as her son once more and tells him she forgives him. After she departs, Kurt is delighted to be reunited with Germaine, his foster sister and the love of his life. Germaine, chagrined, reveals that she has actually been much closer to Kurt than he thought, in the guise of Amanda Sefton, an identity she assumed in order to get close to him and discern the truth of what had happened to Stefan. She's worried Kurt will be angry with her, and while he realizes he should be, he is too overjoyed at the news to care. This is the finest birthday present he has ever received. Germaine continues to use the name Amanda Sefton, and occasionally assists the X-Men with mystical problems from this point forward. Nightcrawler serves with the X-Men for the next several years, through events like the Dark Phoenix Saga, developing deep friendships with his teammates Wolverine and Colossus, and helping the team halt the attempted assassination of Senator Robert Kelly by the shape-shifting terrorist Mystique and her new brotherhood of evil mutants. Nightcrawler is shocked to discover how much Mystique's true form resembles his own, and when he asks her if there is some connection between them, she tells him to question Margali Sardosh. Claremont's intention was to eventually reveal that Nightcrawler was the biological child of Mystique and her female lover Destiny, Mystique having taken a male form to impregnate her partner. The new Marvel editor-in-chief at the time, Jim Shooter, was more controlling than previous editors had been, and one office-wide ruling he made was that the Marvel Universe could not contain any homosexual characters. 
This obviously put the kibosh on the plan for Nightcrawler's parentage, though Claremont continued to hint at it over the years, and used an obscure archaic term for a paramour, Leman, to sneakily convey that Mystique and Destiny were lovers. After Cyclops retires and Storm loses her powers, apparently forever, Nightcrawler takes over leadership of the X-Men. In 1985, a solo Nightcrawler miniseries by his creator Dave Cockrum follows Kurt on a swashbuckling adventure through magical dimensions with Kitty Pride's pet dragon, Lockheed. On this journey, he discovers the Banffs, a race of small imps who resemble him. When Kurt finds his way back to Earth, he resumes his service as team leader, until Cyclops and Storm both return to the team, whereupon Kurt happily steps aside to let them hash that out. An encounter with the cosmic being the Beyonder shakes Kurt's deep and abiding faith in the Christian god, which was previously strong enough to enable him to harm Dracula with a cross. Yes, the X-Men fought Dracula. It was cool. Questioning everything about himself, Kurt has a nasty argument with Amanda that compels her to leave him. While the team is battling the Beyonder without him, Kurt rescues a woman from his old enemy Arcade and discovers she is the secret princess of a faraway land. This reignites his belief in adventure, and he rejoins the team. Amanda, regretting their fight, tries to contact Kurt but fails to reach him with the X-Men, and the two remain estranged for some time. When he's grievously injured in battle with the time-traveling super-sentinel robot called Nimrod, Kurt finds that his teleportation power has become unstable and is now very taxing on his body. During the Mutant Massacre in 1986, he fights alongside the other X-Men against the mass murderers called the Marauders, but is forced to overuse his now unstable teleportation, leaving him comatose. When he wakes, he is informed by Kitty, who was also hospitalized after battling the Marauders, that the other X-Men have been killed in Dallas in the 1988 event Fall of the Mutants. To keep the memory of their friends alive, Kurt, Kitty, and their newer teammate Rachel Summers join forces with Psylocke's brother Brian, Captain Britain, and his girlfriend Megan to form the new British superhero team Excalibur. Kurt feels romantically drawn to Megan, especially when Brian, who has been drinking heavily since his sister's apparent death, begins treating her poorly and flirting with his ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross. Though Megan is tempted by Kurt, she ultimately remains with Brian, who mends his ways, and Kurt has a brief romance with a new teammate, the Shi'ar alien Cerise. In March 1994's X-Men Unlimited No. 4 by Scott Lobdell, Nightcrawler has an adventure with his former teammate Rogue, where they cross paths with Rogue's foster mother, Mystique. It's revealed that Mystique is Kurt's biological mother. She had conceived him with her husband, the German Count Wagner, and her cover as a mutant was blown when the baby was blue and demonic in appearance. To escape the angry townsfolk, Mystique disguised herself among them and, to the cheers of the crowd, cast her own baby into a waterfall to his death. But Kurt survived, miraculously, and was found by Margali Sardash. After numerous adventures with Excalibur, spanning multiple realities, eventually Kurt becomes the leader of the team and reunites with Amanda Sefton, who takes the codename Daytripper as a counterpoint to Nightcrawler. She joins Excalibur, and the two resume their romantic relationship, only to come into conflict with their mother Margali Sardash when she uses the Soul Sword, a demonic relic Kurt had entrusted to Amanda, to massacre her magical rivals on the Winding Way and seize power as the Red Queen of the London branch of the Hellfire Club. Kurt and Amanda stop Margali's plans, and Margali is captured by Belasco, the demonic ruler of the Hell Dimension Limbo. But then Amanda disappears without a word to Kurt, leaving him distraught. He later discovers that Margali has magically stolen Amanda's body, as this was her only desperate means of escape from Belasco. Amanda, trapped in Margali's body, is now Belasco's prisoner, 
and Margali and Kurt travel to Limbo to rescue her from his torture. Though Margali apologizes to her children, Kurt finds it difficult to forgive her, and in the aftermath of Belasco's defeat, Amanda takes the throne of Limbo, parting ways with Kurt to assume this new duty. When Brian and Megan marry and Excalibur disbands, Kurt returns to the X-Men, where he is once again a valued member of the team. Chris Claremont also makes his return to the X-Men at this time, after nearly a decade's absence, in the 2000 event Revolution, which involves a time skip called the Six-Month Gap. During the gap, Kurt decides to become a priest, and departs the team to study at seminary. He still occasionally teams up with the X-Men, and has a few adventures with Amanda, who has taken up the Soul Sword, and the codename Magic, after the sword's previous owner, after assuming Limbo's throne. After Kurt's ordination into the priesthood, he returns to the X-Men. Then Chuck Austin starts writing Uncanny X-Men in 2002. Who boy. First, it's established in a retcon that Kurt never became a priest at all, and the whole thing was a long con by religious extremists to try to destroy the Catholic Church from within. Crestfallen, Kurt decides to leave his ambitions of priesthood behind. Then comes the Draco. Listen, this is the story many people point to as the worst X-Men story of all time, and it's hard to say they're wrong. This is a deservedly infamous story. The Draco continues to explore Kurt's relationship to religion, but in a goofy, goofy way. Kurt's biological father is revealed to be the ancient demonic mutant Azazel, whose war with angelic mutants helped inspire various tales in the Bible, and who has spent the millennia since finding interesting-looking women to impregnate to produce more demonic mutants. Azazel seduced Mystique, whose husband Count Wagner was infertile, and impregnated her with Nightcrawler. When she threw the infant to his death to escape the mob chasing after her, Azazel rescued baby Kurt and entrusted him to Margali Sardash, with whom he was acquainted. Azazel spends most of his time trapped in a mystical dimension and hopes to use Kurt to finally escape it, but he is ultimately foiled. This story basically makes Nightcrawler a literal demon after almost 30 years of stories where the whole point is that Nightcrawler isn't actually a demon. It sucks. In the 2004 Nightcrawler miniseries by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, Margali reveals that Amanda had secretly hidden the Soul Sword inside Nightcrawler's body in order to protect it, as he was so pure of heart that it could not corrupt him. Kurt once again meets Amos Jardine, the circus owner who had tormented him as a young man, and discovers Jardine is now possessed by a demon swarm called Hive, the same demon that had compelled Stefan Sardosh all those years ago to murder the children of Finseldorf. By defeating Hive, Kurt at last avenges Stefan's death and lets go of his own guilt. Around this time, Kurt develops a close relationship with Talia Josephine Wagner, codenamed Nocturne, his daughter from an alternate reality who winds up stuck on Earth-616. He continues to serve with the X-Men and eventually proves key to the storyline X-Infernus when he is recalled to Limbo, where Amanda has been deposed by Belasco. There, Kurt witnesses the resurrection of Limbo's former ruler, the first magic, Ileana Rasputin, who reclaims her soul sword and her throne. Nightcrawler mostly hangs around in the background after that, until the 2010 franchise-wide event Second Coming, in which he is killed by the highly advanced Sentinel Bastion. Three years later, in the new series Amazing X-Men, the X-Men journey to heaven to bring him back. It's not a bad story, but it involves a zazzle, so I'm going to skip it. Look it up if you want. 
In another Nightcrawler miniseries in 2015, this one written by Chris Claremont, Margalia Sardash attempts to unlock the secrets of the afterlife and enter heaven to seize power. Kurt and Amanda stop her, but the portal she has ripped between worlds remains open. As Kurt cannot cross it without being destroyed, having already once willingly left heaven of his own accord, Amanda is forced to enter and seal the portal behind her. Tearfully, she begs Kurt to be the hero she knows he can be and find a way back to her. They later reunite at the borderland of heaven when Kurt is grievously wounded by the Shadow King, and Amanda encourages him to return to the mortal plane, telling him she has a task to perform outside heaven before she can return to him. In the time since, Nightcrawler has remained a loyal member of the X-Men, continuing into the new age of Dawn of X and life on the mutant nation of Krakoa. When the Quiet Council of Krakoa is established to forge the new state's laws, Nightcrawler is one of 12 representatives selected to sit on the council. Ever the debonair ladies' man, Kurt posits that their task is simple. Make. More. Mutants. X-Men! X-Men! That was longer than I thought it would be, because honestly, Nightcrawler is not usually the star of, of many stories, but he's just been around for so long, and the stories that he is primary in are ones that you kind of do need to talk about for a while um particularly obviously the draco which we'll get to in a bit i'm sure because it's so bonkers that you kind of do have to explain it to people otherwise they they don't believe you that it's a thing that happened what i was struck by because as i said sort of at the beginning nightcrawler's never been like my personal favorite but he's always been sort of intriguing to me as i was putting that together i realized that my inroad to him has always been through his family Everybody loves Mystique, obviously, but they don't really have much of a relationship. Like, the real thing that I've always enjoyed is the stuff with Margali and with Amanda Sefton. It sort of occurred to me, and this is something I had never quite thought about before, but Claremont did something very interesting when he came on to that book, which is, I mean, he did a lot of interesting things, but one particularly interesting thing, coming onto the book as a 25-year-old Jewish guy... I think he did something that hadn't really been done before because superhero comics, people have written endlessly about how the early creators were Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish sort of philosophy and cultural stuff in the very concept of the superhero comic book. But almost no superheroes were actually Jewish. Right. It was always kind of like absorbed into the circumstances that produced the creators. And it was very subtextual but kind of ever-present thing and like batman has been established to be jewish through his mother via retcon or like the thing turned out to be jewish which was always the intention but i don't think it was ever said on panel until like the 80s i believe so yeah i want to say that there's like a couple one-off bar mitzvah jokes or maybe like even like a really sly i looked into this at one point and i honestly don't think it ever happens in the original lee kirby stories like i think it's it was always intended like jack kirby would draw the thing on his hanukkah cards but like and his name is benjamin Grimm. i mean like you know it's a pretty right but like <laughs> there's there's plenty of apocrypha um, at the time but no i i think i think you're right it, it was not an overt thing until shockingly recently right and so what claremont did which which really was obviously revolutionary was the retcon of magneto's backstory because in the classic stories magneto is just a crazy fascist who wants to be you know wants to rule the world right And Claremont was like, actually, he's a Jewish Holocaust survivor who's traumatized by his experiences at Auschwitz. And like, he believes in separatism because he thinks that like assimilation was in part what led to the destruction of his family. And that became so indelibly associated with the character that people assume 
it was part of the character all along, but it's really 20 years into the character's publication that Claremont does that. What I noticed when talking about Nightcrawler, it suddenly sort of occurred to me, is that the German characters that Claremont gets invested in, he invariably associates them closely with Jewish people or Romani people. And it feels to me like sort of an intentional thing on his part. Like if Kurt Wagner, literally named after Wagner, is going to be one of the X-Men, then Claremont's like, okay, then he was raised by Romany people. And like, right. you know, he like, just, he he's didn't not, stay in that house with yeah, the Baron. He's not, he's not, a, he's not a Wagner in like a, you know, Nazi kind of way. Like, that's just not something I'm going to do. And similarly, even Mystique, who was evil, but, you know, Claremont always had a soft spot for her and, and wrote her in a more sympathetic way at times. Irene Adler, Destiny, I mean, Adler is not exclusively a Jewish name, but it's often a Jewish name. And, and the Irene Adler from the Sherlock Holmes books, who, of course, Destiny is supposed to actually be, um, but we'll get to that in a Mystique episode at some point. There's been a lot of scholarship on Scandal in Bohemia, sort of wondering if Arthur Conan Doyle intended for Irene Adler to be Jewish. Uh, it's not said in the in the story, but it's a very common Yiddish surname. And I just feel like it's sort of an intentional move that like Mystique's wife is an Adler and Nightcrawler's adoptive mother is quote unquote the gypsy witch queen. Um, and just for like a terminology note on this podcast, throughout all of these stories, um, two very recent stories, all of the Romany characters at Marvel uh, and any like traveler characters are sort of referred to as gypsies. Uh, that term is controversial in the Romani community. Some people have sort of reclaimed it, but a lot of people consider it to be pejorative and racist. So this podcast is going to refer to all characters of these ethnicities as either Romani or if we know their specific subgroup, like Megan, Brian Braddock's wife, is Romani Shal, or maybe Ruska Roma. There's a weird issue of Excalibur that implies her family's from Russia, but everything else she seems to be Romanishal and like Magneto's wife was Sinti I'm going to try to be specific because I think it's important to to do that and this is one of the most unfairly maligned and persecuted ethnic groups in the in the world and I don't want to contribute to any discomfort or you know distress for any Romani listeners but I am far from an expert on this uh, subject so if I get anything wrong please do uh, feel free to write in um, I'm setting up a, an email account at cerebrocast at gmail.com where you can leave comments I don't know that I'll address emails on the show necessarily but I always appreciate stuff like that where it's just like you know I'm not an expert on Romani culture in any case Nightcrawler's family are Roma um, Margali is originally from France but they're operating in Germany by the time they adopt him that's part of why my pronunciation drama I was like I'm gonna go with like a with Hungarian because of the, the SZ and I feel like you know that seems right and there are a lot of Roma in Hungary I think it's a I think it's a good faith reading though yeah I yeah well I keep think in mind is how many of these things like the Claremont was doing were of their time right with good intentions and also overwhelmingly informed by whatever the dominant pop culture approach well was. yeah i mean notably you look at it and like 
yes, Nightcrawler's adoptive mother is a Romany woman. So, of course, she is uh, a fortune-telling witch. Right, like, she has yes, magic powers. Right, like she is an, a powerful in, sorceress. Right, lives in and a lives wagon of some in, a, in a caravan as part of a traveling circus telling fortunes. So, yes. Right. One thing that I noticed in this storyline that I hadn't quite caught before for the Buffy heads out there, I think it is undeniable that, I mean, Joss Whedon has talked a lot about how Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men influenced Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it seems now painfully obvious to me in retrospect that Kurt's girlfriend, Amanda Sefton, is secretly Jemaine Sardosh, is exactly the season two Buffy plot where Giles's girlfriend, Jenny Callender, is secretly Yana Calderash. I have no memory of this. We're, we're, watching, we're watching old Buffys, but we're watching them kind of on shuffle. Uh, and it's it's too much it's too much to keep in my head. I thought you were going to say that he is, um, and I, and I think that this is this is true separately. Uh, that Lorne on Angel has big Nightcrawler energy. Oh, for sure. But I just so Giles's girlfriend Jenny Calendar is revealed in see sorry spoilers for a show that is 20 years old yeah buffy was a hundred years ago <laughs> you guys in season two uh in season two of buffy jenny who was my favorite recurring character uh is revealed to secretly be a spy sent by the romany clan that cursed angel oh i remember now yeah yes and her real name is yana Kelderesh. and so Amanda Sefton being secretly a spy who has entered Kurt's life to find out what happened to her brother and her real name is Jemaine Sardosh. It feels like, I mean, maybe, I don't know if it's intentional, but maybe that was something that was just rattling around in his brain since he was a teenager and he, and he borrowed it. Yeah, I buy that. Anyway, my, my point was just sort of, I think that Claremont was very, felt very strongly about bringing jewish stuff into superhero books and you know obviously the holocaust was never very far from his thoughts between magneto and days of future past and the excalibur arc where they have to fight versions of themselves from the nazi earth where kitty is like a holocaust victim who's their slave there's a lot of stuff that's really yeah that uh, one is that that's one real is intense worth reading that one is nuts it's really um, intense yeah, and good. It's very and I, provocative, uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I mean this in a variety of ways. It's yeah. very provocative artwork um, as I, well. I'll never. I, the Alan Davis art on that run is insane. Yeah, and uh, integral to my love of Nightcrawler uh, as well. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the one of the ways that I came to the character because when I got home from the video arcade and my dad was excited that I expressed interest in Marvel Comics for the first time. Uh, Excalibur number one had come out not terribly long ago, and we didn't have a lot of number ones in the house. And X-Men, you know, as uh, probably everybody listening knows or suspects by now, it is not famous for its jumping on points. No, that's sort of the point of this podcast on some level, because I, everybody has a favorite X-Man that they like to talk about. And I hope that over the course of these conversations, people can sort of hear about jumping on points that they might enjoy or whatever. And Excalibur is where I certainly liked Nightcrawler most. I mean, he, you know, I loved that book and I loved Megan actually. And his relationship with Megan was always really intriguing. Uh, The will they, won't they, will she cheat on Brian with him? And they never do because they're both good people, but there's definitely chemistry there. Well, and also they're also both Romany. I mean, he's adopted, but they grew up, both of them, in a traveler Romany culture. So there's a 
there is a, a connection between them. But then she's also, she's, and I, look, I love this stuff. Uh, I've read a ton of it. Uh, it is too much for me to keep in my head. So oh, for sure, for sure. Anyone who's yelling at their iPhones right now. So she's also, Megan's also like of the faith folk, right? Like she's kind of so, occupies this interesting space of being like a foot in Brian's world. Yeah, so that's deeply unclear. And it's something that no writers have ever really been able to agree on. Um, in those classic Excalibur stories, there's no real indication that she's supposed to be a mutant at all. Like she's just a fairy character. Yeah, that was never my takeaway, uh, which was one of the mind blowing things about it was that it was already bending what I understood to be the rules of X-Men. In more recent stuff she's been firmly established to be a mutant which calls a lot of that into question and i want to do a, a whole megan episode at at some point probably soon because she's a favorite of mine that i think a lot of people don't know a lot about and if i do that my guest and i will really dig deep into that because my my official read i guess on megan is that she's sort of like iliana where Ileana's mutant power was to control the stepping discs of Limbo, which is like, that's bizarre. How does that make any sense? Yeah, sometimes it feels like a branding issue that they need to yeah. retroactively make the thing a mutant power. Yeah, or like... they live in the, the, X-Men, the X-Men stories. Before Wanda got all fucked up in terms of her backstory because of the movies... Uh, or, you know, they say it's not because the movie is whatever. Well, for whatever reason, they made Wanda not <laughs> not Magneto's daughter anymore uh, and not a mutant anymore. Um, but before that, it was sort of established in the Avengers that her mutant power, like, attuned her to chaos magic naturally and made her, like, more able to become a gifted sorceress. So I think Ma- Megan is probably one of those where, like, her mutant power is also kind of magical. And that actually is what Teenie's... Excalibur is is sort of about is the idea that there isn't necessarily a difference right like it depends it all depends on how you look at it so anyway that's not about Nightcrawler so let's let's pivot back but I guess what I what I just <laughs> I guess what I just wanted to say uh just to, to finish my thought on Claremont and sort of the Jewish themes is that I think with Nightcrawler and uh with a couple other characters like like Magneto's wife I do think that he felt it was important to also represent Romani people alongside the the Jewish characters he was creating and I think that that's really cool because you don't see that a lot except in sort of stereotypical roles and um Amanda Sefton is not a stereotypical character at all. Teeny Howard actually has Romany heritage. And I, I hope that at some point she gets to do something cool with Amanda and, and Margali, because I think that it would be nice to see a writer with that heritage actually like write them, because I don't think that's ever happened before. That would be phenomenal, yeah. And also just that it's it's been a minute. Uh, yeah, we haven't really... These, these mm-hmm. wonderful, enduring characters kind of like get their outing uh as each subsequent wave of you know creators with exactly. uh, all of the the combined influence uh behind them and i think it's a good time because like amanda's not a mutant and all the krakoa stuff is like making it complicated so for kurt to be like oh this is the woman i love but she's not a mutant like what does that mean would be kind of interesting i think that would be interesting. It would also get it away from the sister thing a little bit. Yeah, the sister thing is not great. It's not perfect. It's not <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, mm, yeah, it's not great. Claremont has a couple of those, like, romances where you just pause and you're like, wait, what? But they take great pains a couple times to be like, Margali never formally adopted him. It's like, okay, but, like, they did 
they were raised together, like, essentially as siblings. Yeah, it depends on the writer. I mean, there's some people, you know, because Nightcrawler is kind of, um, how do I put this? He's a big old horn dog. Yes. Uh, he's, he's one of the, he's one of the He's a ladies who, man. He loves He's a ladies, ladies man. Uh, so I think that some of the writers uh, who wants to make sure that they're honoring that aspect of the character um, do so in ways that are like a little fan servicey sometimes or a mm-hmm. little kinky sometimes. So there are writers who kind of treat it like uh, treat the Amanda relationship like the third rail. And then there's like the 2004, I want to say. A uh, miniseries where the discomfort of that relationship is very much on Nightcrawler's mind, mm-hmm. uh, and it's all about his kind of fraught relationships by the the women he's he's tempted by uh, in, yeah. in that particular supporting cast. I mean, I like that. I like the weirdness of it in the '90s Excalibur stuff in particular, when Margali first sort of like pivots to evil. I think that it's interesting that it's like this is nightcrawler this is his girlfriend they are both calling this woman mother that's very weird yeah you know like, <laughs> but they're fully they are fully dating at that yeah point. they are fully dating and like they live together and like this is his mother this is her mother it's both of their mother but they're not blood relative it's just it makes it sort of sort of interesting and strange and it feels like something that you know sure at this weird circus like why not who else did they know? There were like three kids there. This is probably this is probably a, a pun, but you know the the mental gymnastics are surprisingly easy. It yeah, kind of falls it, into like because X Men territory, right? I mean, the weirdest part is actually that he's dating her for a few months before he finds out she's Jermaine. Yes, like that's bizarre. She's <laughs> <Which is> hilarious because <laughs> because her because her being Jermaine is a retcon, so it's just like a very funny. And he's not even mad. That's my favorite. I reread that before we did this, like the the annual where they go to hell and uh, and it introduces Margali and like that the resolution is, oh, well, Kurt, uh, actually, I've been around for a while because we've been dating for almost a year. I've been disguised as a bit deceptive. And he's like, oh, my God. And she's like, are you mad at me? He's like, I think I should be, but I'm actually not because this is so exciting. The emotional right. bond is already exactly. so strong. Also, the uh, the issue, I believe it's the same issue uh, that opens with a Nightcrawler's uh, surprise birthday party. It where is, Wolverine yeah. Wolverine sent him on errands all day, and that's how you get the meme of him opening the framed photograph of Wolverine. I, I don't remember because I honestly, I, I was reading it to get, because um, that's where the first, that's the first time that the backstory is related. So I was like, related, no pun intended, the backstory that Nightcrawler and his girlfriend are related right. is related <laughs> for the first time in uh, in that issue. And so I um, I skipped to like the Margali and Jemaine stuff. So I didn't read like the beginning part. Yeah, it's uh, long. It's an annual. It's an they annual. They're Dante's long. Yeah. It's long. Um. Yeah, no. And it's bizarre. There's a part where like Storm gets turned into a lizard for a minute. And she's like, the things I did when I was a lizard will disturb me forever. And then she never speaks of it again. No, I do not remember that part. That <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a wild time. Um, Claremont loves people getting turned into stuff. He's a big fan of that. Um, yeah. You know, let's not yeah. dig too deep into it, but it happens a lot in these uh, in that run. Yeah, he's got stuff. He's got stuff for people who like things. Yeah. Speaking of runs. um, what is your sort of 
Again, like I said, it's hard to kind of identify individual stories about Nightcrawler because he's not usually at the center of the story. But what are sort of your favorite Nightcrawler moments? What are what do you think of? What what's your favorite stuff? Yeah, I think that's I mean, I think that's appropriate. I think that's typical of the character and people's love for him is that he is sort of this quintessential utility player. Uh, he gets along with everybody. Um, he's not, uh, he, whenever something bad happens to Nightcrawler, writers always have uh, Cyclops or Professor X say that he was the heart of the team. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's really true. I don't think that he's, even though his personality is informed by his obsession with leading men, I think that that's intended to be sort of a bittersweet irony because of his appearance and the love of Nightcrawler is kind of having him, you know, li- he literally pops up. Like he, he is a surprise. <laughs> he pops yeah. into frame. Bamf, so like he's there. Yeah, he bamps. So uh, when Nightcrawler isn't in a run, like when he's not in New X-Men, it's a big deal. And then I it's think he's for the first yeah. time in a crowd shot. Because he doesn't have to be in the, in the ensemble uh, in the, like the principal ensemble for an X-Men comic to work at all. He's just, um, he's just like a, like a catalyst. Like he brings, he brings people together. So when I think of my favorite Nightcrawler stories, I was a big Excalibur guy, but you know, I was like 11. Like, I don't know how Mm -hmm. much of it I was really even getting the first time I read it. It was, it holds up. I reread it recently. It really holds up. Yeah. Reread, reread since, um, it's so bizarre, uh, but the the art obviously uh, was was what compelled me when when I was a kid. The relationship I had with the character and the art. So I didn't, you know, because I wasn't really a comic book reader until I discovered Nightcrawler. I didn't come to him through story. I kind of came to him through design. The aesthetic, yeah, yeah, through aesthetic. And then the stories that I did have at my disposal were Claremont Byrne reprints. So he was the, you know, he was the jokester, the heart of the team, the the weirdo. He was the one who made Kitty uncomfortable mm-hmm. for a minute. And then they, you know, gradually become uh, best friends. He's kind of best friends with everybody. He's sort of Wolverine's canonical male best friend. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. The um, I think the first time anyone finds out his name is Logan which it turns out, of course, isn't actually his name, but you get what I mean. Right. It's, I think it's Nightcrawler when Nightcrawler, like, goes to Canada with him and they, like, fight the Wendigo. Yeah, and that's and that's a great one. Like, that's one that would be, that's one that would be on my list, but it's hard to, you know, or when Colossus and Wolverine and, and uh, Nightcrawler go to the bar and fight Juggernaut. Yeah, and then they go on, like, a road trip at one point. Like, they're always doing stuff, the three of them, kind of. I mean, what I love is that, like, when he first starts dating Amanda, it's because he and Colossus start going on double dates with these flight attendants they met. That's right. That's and then right. the two of them, like, then all of them get kidnapped by Arcade. And, like, Amanda hangs around, but, like, Betsy, not to be confused with Betsy Braddock, but, like, Betsy, the flight attendant, who's Amanda's friend, never shows up again. So it's, like, clearly she called Piotr and was like, um, yeah, it's not me. It's you and your team of misfits that get kidnapped by serial killers. I'm out. But Amanda hung in there for some reason. And then not long afterward, we understand that the reason is that she's uh, dating her brother and she cares about him. Yes, which is sweet and very, <laughs> very comic book. I mean, listen, you know, it's it is very much a uh, 
it's also though it's very much a fairy tale trope it's like they're not you know they they're so close but they are not actually related so it's okay for them to get together at the end right like you know because when you're telling a story for children often that bond of like they grew up like siblings is a pretty right. common one of them is royalty and one of them works in the stables. Exactly. And, yeah, right. and they're the only children, you know, it's the old timey equivalent or in the case of the X-Men, the sort of like timeless Bavaria equivalent mm-hmm. of the, the girl next door. Yes. And there is something so intimate about the fact that they, it was really their own little world. Like they, you know, they were so isolated in this traveling circus and they were traveling all the time. So they didn't get to put down roots and make friends or anything. like they really only had each other. Yeah, it's so it's so odd. And I think that that's, you know, when I think about the other great Nightcrawler stories, I think about the first appearance in Giant Size. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I reread it really recently. And something that I never noticed before was that he, at that time, can teleport away. He can leave the conflict if he has to. Mm-hmm. And instead, he uh, gives in to the idea that he's a monster um, but not in a way where he's going to like kill anybody, not in like a bestial Wolverine going berserker way. He plays the role for them and then he lets them get the stake against his heart mm-hmm. before Professor X freezes everybody in their tracks. And I thought that that was so interesting because I know in a, in a sort of superficial kind of uh, always on kind of way that that's Nightcrawler's story is that he's the one who doesn't blend in. He's the one who's all the way on the far end of the spectrum when X-Men gets relaunched and they start sort of kind of committing to the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's the one who exemplifies it uh, with the least privilege. But it, it hadn't really, uh, I hadn't really grokked the fact that there's a uh passively suicidal not meant for this world degree of melancholy baked into his first appearance that that's in the dna that that nightcrawler is a kind and innocent soul who he will give in like if he is if he is bullied (laughs) if if he is the victim of cruelty you know he he will he will break and then in the in that annual that introduces Margali and Germain, you find out that the conflict he had with his brother Stefan, where Stefan ends up dead, happens literally hours before that first appearance in Giant Size. So that's imme- that's what happens immediately before that scene. And it, I think that that on some level was Claremont asking because Claremont didn't write Giant Size. That was Len Wein with Dave Cockrum, he was sort of saying like, what, what would have driven him to the point where he doesn't want to escape? And it's that he's just killed his brother, thinks he can never return home to his mother and never return home to Jemaine, who he loves. And he doesn't care at that point. And then Xavier offers him another option. But in the moment, he thinks that he has no home and it's the only home where anyone would ever accept him because the way he looks makes it impossible for him to find another home. So, you know, he, he feels that he has nothing left and no options. Um, and I think that that's a really smart story in that sense. Uh, it is kind of funny to me that as different writers keep 
you know, adding bits and pieces to his backstory at the circus, that day seems to become just like really busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's got that superhero thing of like, you know, a lot was going on when Batman's parents got killed mm-hmm. or when Krypton blew up. Everything kind of gravitates towards the same, you know, two week period. <laughs> I think there's like in different flashbacks, there's like three different incidents that week where he saved Jemaine from like killing herself in the circus by like falling off the trapeze or like whatever, like with his teleportation. It's like someone took a note, like he saved Jemaine by teleporting, but they didn't note down like how, because one time it's a tightrope, one time it's a trapeze. It's like, wow, for a girl who grew up in the circus, like she's not very good at all of this, I guess, because she almost died like four times that day. And he's a ringer. He's essentially cheating. Yeah, that's the, but that's the, the joy of the X-Men on some level is you have to take what you want and kind of let the rest of it go. I mean, the really sterling example of that for me with Nightcrawler is the Draco, which is one of the last things I was really pulling uh, for a while because I fell off the X-Men really hard when the decimation happened and just didn't read comics really at all. I mean, I, I went to, I started reading DC. I was like so angry about the decimation. But uh, before that is Austin's run on Uncanny. Is a, is, a, is a weird little detour. And it is astonishing how bad that is for so many reasons. Like, first of all, the story is just bad. But also the stupidity of taking a character where the whole point of the character for the 30 years of publication up to that point is that he looks like a demon and is treated like a demon but is not actually a demon and then going meet his father who is a demon is just astonishing to me that you could miss the point that badly yeah i i understand the temptation to do something like that because you have a very religious character who looks like a demon and that's kind of the game you play that tension for you know 45 years uh and then also on the x-men you have a character whose name is angel and he has and he has big wings right and and magic has always been part of the x-men and then there are characters like apocalypse who are very old and then they're kind of you know sort of a chariots of the gods science fiction way kind of tied into mythology yeah apocalypse and selene are are certainly just as magical as anybody even if their power comes from being a mutant because they go back that far and they were worshipped and you know that kind of stuff total chariots of the gods stuff and then nightcrawler himself is very tied in with the magic side of the marvel universe because of margali and amanda the special guest star in that annual with his backstory is Doctor Strange. And then like he and Margali have a sorcery battle in hell, right? So Nightcrawler always has that stuff, especially like as it goes on, he gets tied in with the soul sword because Amanda does. And then there's all kinds of stuff in limbo with Belasco. Yeah, his team ends up being Excalibur, you know? For yeah, ages. which is the magic team. But like you'd think... You could do that without feeling the need to literally make him a demon when the point is that he's not. It makes Reverend Stryker from God Loves Man Kills seem a little bit correct. And I feel like any story element that remotely validates that guy is a poor narrative decision. I'll just put it that way. 
And even if you're going to go, well, they're demon mutants, it's like, okay, but, you know, the Azazel character is literally Satan. Right. It, it, I believe it, at times uh, the story, um, the character tells you that he was Satan, that he was misinterpreted as Satan, or he says that, you know, there were a bunch of people who wanted to be Satan and he fought Mephisto. Yeah, which like Mephisto, Marduk, uh, the father of Hellstrom and Satana, um, you know, there's a bunch of them in Marvel um, and they all kind of argue. I mean, Belasco is a great example of another oh, yeah. one of those. But I mean, honestly, like if you were really going to do this, make his father Belasco. Yeah, no, that makes like, sense too. Why? I mean, my, why my... invent <laughs> a new stupid character? But I mean, but I would have been mad even if if they had made his father Belasco too. I just that would at least have like had some resonance with anything that already existed. It it just is one of those things where it's so literal that it makes my head hurt. Like, why would you? And this is right after, by the way, the arc where Austin writes The Church of Humanity, where it turns out that Kurt becoming a priest was all an illusion and that the goal of The Church of Humanity was to install him as Pope and then trigger the rapture, which, by the way, Catholics don't believe in. I will confess um, to loving that idea on paper. Like, that's to me, if that happened in, like, Grant Morrison's new X-Men run, I'd be like, that's genius. Because Morrison would have made it good. Morrison would have written that and made it good. Like, the, yes, the idea that we, we, we convinced Kurt to become a priest so that we can break his image inducer after he's Pope and then, like, reveal the Pope as a demon, that's hilarious as a concept. But the storyline is awful and then it goes directly from there when he's like oh well i guess i don't want to be a priest never mind i've lost my faith in organized religion or whatever and then we go into the draco where it's like also your dad is satan and that's not even to get into the fact that claremont's original intention for nightcrawler's parents was that destiny was his mother and mystique was his father which, which is, is so much brilliant that's so, so much more interesting fascinating uh, I believe Rogue was also supposed to be their biological child and was supposed to be his biological sibling. I think that that is what Claremont intended to do, but it was never, he wasn't allowed to do any of it, obviously, because Shooter wouldn't let anyone be gay, much less let someone be a shape-shifting, gender-fluid, androgynous being who takes male form to impregnate her lesbian lover. I, I could understand that one being a little outré for Marvel in the 80s, but, you know, he wouldn't even let Claremont say on panel that Mystique and Destiny were a couple. You know, Claremont had to sneak it in by referring to Destiny as Mystique's Le Mans, which is like a term no one has used since like the 1720s or whatever. Which I do, I do love. If you are going to, if you are going to sneak stuff in, that's such a comic book writer way to do oh, it. Oh yeah, and Claremont. I mean, Claremont was clearly very enmeshed in sexual subcultures he knew what he was talking about the metaphor becomes a lot stronger under him in part because while he is not as far as i know like a queer person himself he clearly was in i mean look at the hellfire club look at rachel summers right. look at you know like he's in he he was in the bdsm scene pretty clearly and he clearly knew a lot of people in the queer scene in new york these are not accidental or yeah or exactly choices. and that's one of the reasons i think that they resonate so much with yeah they work because they're they are he comes correct they feel you know, very is, lived in yeah 
he's serving he's serving the audience and he has he has a relationship with them but that was why it aggravated the shit out of me apart from the demon thing was that i was like it's 2003 surely we could do the story now like there's no reason not to do it sure yeah it would have been interesting in in any era it's a inherently fascinating superhero idea yeah and instead you're gonna establish via retcon that mystique was seduced by the devil so this bummed me out not in like a big comic book fan way because i didn't read i didn't read very much of it and i wasn't reading a lot of superhero comic books at that time uh but what bummed me out about it are these kind of really regardless of how you feel about the big picture story the things that i latched onto were these really nitpicky things that because i love nightcrawler but also because I love the X-Men, um, these really nitpicky things that kind of break X-Men for me a little bit. And one of the big things that I think is so important about X-Men is that your kid can be a mutant. Yes. That's the that's kind of the whole point. Is that's that why Charles they're Xavier scary to people. comes to your house. Exactly. And it's like, oh man, there's a, there's a kid down the block who can shoot lasers out of his eyeballs. And he just has like normal parents and I don't want this in my backyard. And right. that to me is kind of the core of the X-Men is that there's a, you know, there's a place for you. And as soon as, and it's kind of inevitable and I don't really blame anybody and you have to come up with new stories because you've been doing it for 40 years. But as soon as you make mutants um, an explicitly genetic thing, like I know that they all have siblings and... oh. You know, yeah. the, you know there, there's the Summers Brothers and the Mr. Sinister Bloodline, mm-hmm. and it, it's always been a thing. But when a blue mutant and a devil mutant have a baby have who a is blue a blue devil, devil mutant, mutant yeah. yeah, so I think you're working against one of the things that I think is really important about the X-Men is that what is interesting about Nightcrawler, and, you know, continuity is what it is, but one of the things that I thought was important about Nightcrawler was that he was born looking different and therefore abandoned. And then when you find out that he has a blue mom, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But she was a shapeshifter. So there was still like stigma about it. That's introduced so early in the 80s stuff that it doesn't really bother me. The idea that Mystique is his mother, because the first time he sees her, he's like, whoa, we look a lot alike. And she's like, ask Margali about that. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's definitely grandfathered in and it it would be an elephant in the room if you didn't do it. Well, and weirdly, Claremont didn't because I guess for so long, I guess he was just like waiting for Shooter to get fired, which did eventually happen to like try and do his his awesome like gender fluid lesbianism, women power he was gonna do it right or or not at all yeah yeah i don't think i don't think this has anything to do with the draco but what ends up happening in the marvel universe and with marvel writers is that um you get stuff like um i want to say in the kevin smith black cat comics there's a bad guy who has sort of like a low level teleportation based power and he uh, genetically traces himself back to the area of Germany where Nightcrawler came from. Like, he's a distant cousin of Nightcrawler. <sighs> and so he has these kinds of... And I, you know, I'm a Kevin Smith fan on the whole. Uh, but uh, this is not how I would have done this one comic book. No, it's just the endless need to connect everything. And listen, Claremont was not immune to that. But I do think that he was very careful about how he did it. 
And I do like there's occasionally there's stories where it just feels like they pull a lot of things together. Mr. Sinister is really a classic exemplar of this. I feel like anytime they do a flashback with Mr. Sinister, it's like it turns out someone else's grandma knew Mr. Sinister. <laughs> but at least that's his deal, you know? Like, no, it is his deal. And his whole deal, deal his whole deal is. is tracking mutant bloodlines through centuries. So it makes total sense. But it does start to become it's like how many ancestors of Scott Summers like crossed paths with Mr. Sinister? In that case, at least that's his like huge obsession but when it's like and then he had this research facility and destiny worked there and it's like why just because she's old you know like there's no like you know i don't know it's just one of those things like that's the black womb project which is uh no i don't think i even know about that but that's my hang up with that's my hang up with the draco it's not so much like this is a bad story or no it's that it's done it it's that the blue mom had to also have a demon baby daddy who has teleportation powers by the way like it's so on the nose and it's insulting to the reader that's not how i that's not how my headcanon with mutants works i think it's very important that it's be like hey i just like i'm a kid from deerfield illinois and i can walk through walls right and i was told that this is where y'all live yeah and i i think that there is value in the the sort of dynastic lines that certain characters have but i do agree that it shouldn't be that literal because then like if nightcrawler can only be born to people who already look like that then the existential fear of nightcrawler is no longer scary to regular people i mean the nightcrawler motif that recurs constantly through those early issues is he's constantly from his very first appearance in giant size being chased by angry mobs that want to kill him i mean there's a very memorable issue that i always think of whenever someone whenever i'm talking about kitty pride where like and you know is this a little eye roll worthy yes she's like 15 years old and she gives a speech that convinces the mob that they're wrong but it's a very powerful speech where she talks about how you know her family was butchered in the holocaust and like people still think black people aren't human and like does that mean they're right like how dare you just like decide because of the way this person looks or because of what you think about him that he's not a real person deserving of dignity and it's it's a very you know he has kitty give a lot of those soapbox speeches and they're not they don't all hit but that one that one has sure. always hit that one is always hit i mean there's the there's the really bad one where she drops a bunch of racial slurs but um you know that one i think sort of threads the needle uh pretty well and i do think that for him to work on that level he has to be something that can just happen to you yeah it has to be spontaneous and just for the x-men to work on that level too because it's it's different to have two summers brothers who both have kind of like you know ill-defined laser powers than to have like uh, you know, a third summer's cousin who can right. shoot like a little bit of laser right. out from between his fingers. Like, I don't have a problem with the retcon that Polaris is Magneto's daughter. That's fine with me. No, that feels like blue skin, yellow eye territory where it would be honestly a little stranger if it wasn't addressed. If like you weren't related in some way, right? Because it's such a specific power. It's like, oh, uh, you also have the power of magnetism? Like what, you know, so that kind of stuff makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, but exception rather than the rule, yeah, I think is where I, I land. You know, because creating a parallel mythology I think does a disservice to 
Um, at least what I like about the comics and what I feel like makes them work. It turns it into the Eternals or the New Gods or one of those, as opposed to the, like, your kid could be a mutant, uh-oh, which is right. definitely... And, I just think and that's, that's the stronger. only thing that really separates the X-Men from the Avengers or the Fantastic Four, right? Like, it doesn't really make sense that the Marvel Universe will fully accept the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, but the X-Men are bridged too far. And the reason that that can work at all is because what's scary about mutants is that your child could be one, is that they are lurking among you and they are going to outmode you. They are going to supplant you. And that's why Grant Morrison's E is for Extinction is so brilliant because once the fact of the matter is humans are going extinct and mutants are going to replace them, of course humans are going to become extremely reactionary about that news. So, you know, that I, yeah. I agree with you. And I think that that making Nightcrawler the son of a millennia old demon mutant is like just so fucking stupid because it throws all of that out the window. So my position is, and this is why in the character review, I just skipped over the plot where he comes back from the dead because it involves Azazel and I just don't care. It does. I will say, if anybody wants to read it, I, I do think it's handled really well. It's, it's good. Really it's not a bad. It's of, not um, a bad book. Of embracing the of embracing the continuity uh, of not just of not being like a like a hard nosed about it of kind of like yep it all happened let's make it work. Yeah, and I I think that there's value in that. But if it were me, I would just truly put Azazel down the memory hole. Like I just don't think you know just. And it's very easy. I mean, you don't have to, to go really far out there. You just say, oh, this Satan guy, he was lying to you. He's not your dad. Like, it's that, it's really that simple. And it's not like anyone is like a huge Chuck Austin partisan who's going to be like, how dare you retcon out the Draco? So I just feel like at this point, they have nothing to lose there. Especially now that like Mystique and Destiny are are pretty prominent storyline wise in the new status quo. Yeah, that's been that's been really great and really yeah. effective. I mean I'm a I'm a big I'm like a Destiny stan. I love that I love that old broad and her exposed sexy legs despite her being a million years old. I think that if we're all that ancient and wearing a sexy high cut leotard with our legs exposed, we are all we should be so lucky as to be that confident. And, you know, she's that confident because her immortal girlfriend thinks she's smoking hot no matter how old she gets. And I love that for them. That's right. OTP. Yeah. Oh, truly, truly. I guess that's that's enough on the Draco. What would you like to see sort of where would you like to see the character go? Obviously, we're in an exciting new status quo where it feels like almost anything can happen in the dawn of X, but you don't have to get that specific. Just sort of like what what would be your ideal sort of positioning for the character? You know, he's had a lot of weird hats. He, he's been sort of a, a swashbuckling pirate guy. He was in that one miniseries kind of an occult detective for a minute. Yeah, he has kind of a Hellboy phase or a Hellblazer phase. Hellblazer, like yeah, a little bit of a a little bit of a Hellblazer edge in that one book. I that's not how I, that's not where I would want to put him. But I'm just curious as to like what you think the ideal sort of positioning for the character would be, or where you think his story maybe should go in a hypothetical ideal world. That's kind of where I keep coming back to my my thesis of Nightcrawler as ultimate supporting character, and I can't stress enough that he is my 
favorite superhero. <laughs> but d- but that doesn't really mean that I think that there needs to be like a going Nightcrawler comic at all times. I well, think I think that- most I think most of the X Men cannot support a solo title. I think that they are an ensemble cast. I think there are a couple characters that work solo wolverine obviously works solo uh i think they've never quite done it but i think storm could could anchor a book yes yeah, Storm um, is always so close and i think that whenever they do stuff with gambit and rogue on their own that always really works um but otherwise i i do find that they work best as a as a team book so i don't mean like a nightcrawler solo series i just mean is there is there something unresolved that you think it would be fun to play with or sure um well i think they're doing a good job so far i read i think hickman penned it i think it was hickman and alan davis and i thought that was very very good and i thought that between that and um, nightcrawler has a memorable a uh, show-stopping line uh, during uh, during one of their big council meetings that ends up sort of setting the tone, at least for the soap opera aspects of yes. Krakoa. He says they they turn to they're trying to come up with the laws for Krakoa, and they turn to Nightcrawler, who is their sort of I believe it's Mystique, sort of in a in a taking a dig at him kind of way, uh, turns to the the man of faith uh, at the meeting, and uh, Nightcrawler uh, suggests the commandment make more mutants. Mm-hmm. Because Nightcrawler is very sex positive. Nightcrawler likes to fuck. Nightcrawler fucks. While the while the the Holy War storyline was bad, I don't have a problem with them getting rid of the priest element because I do think that while it was interesting and it is interesting that he is religious, I don't think it serves the character to have him not fucking because he loves to fuck. I'm almost positive that at some point I said on Twitter that Nightcrawler was the original hot priest when the when the Fleabag season two thing was going on because I, I'm totally cool with Nightcrawler uh, diving in and out of the priesthood. Well, but like at least he needs to at least be like Episcopalian or something. Like you sure, can't do the or... Catholic priest thing. You can't because then he can't be with the ladies, and Nightcrawler well, or loves it's... the ladies it's you know it's forbidden love it's the well, thing sure. that, yes. that it's the thing that tests his faith because he is such a sexually charged person uh that he ultimately finds like i think that that is a a uh inherently interesting and totally fair story um i think i would have rather have seen claremont do it in like the 80s uh because claremont's so good at sexy subtext yes and i do like in that miniseries that where he does sort of do like the occult detective thing that it is sort of he's like well i'm cuz he is a priest by that point right isn't he and so he's kind of like well he's i'm he's a... like just out i believe yeah so and... it's like well, it's like it's like so torn between like hmm i'm a priest i love god also i really want to fuck my sister remember my sister who i was in love with uh and which is not That's a the, real the most like, priestly thing to do. Right. Like cause his relationship with Jermaine Amanda is already so like to an outsider who doesn't know them would already come across as so sinful and weird that it's almost the perfect um foil for his like Catholic convictions. Because if there's anything you should feel guilty about, it's like coveting your adopted sister, right? Right. There's like an Oscar Bates drama in Absolutely. Here somewhere. But that's when your Lois Lane is your foster sister. It's not <laughs> like you you don't have a choice. You can't escape it. 
But so I, I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that I think that um, Hickman and the Dawn of X stuff really gets Nightcrawler, which is that he is a support player. He's a sort of he's a big pop, you know, he's a showstopper. Uh, he is somebody who's in crowd shots and your eye is drawn to him, but he's not necessarily the main character. And in the giant size, he's doing paranormal investigating type stuff, which mm-hmm. is kind of kind of baked in. Now, um, I'm surprised that he's not in the Marauders, I guess, because that's the yeah. one that's about a pirate ship. <laughs> yeah, I, I was also a little surprised by that. And but I, I, Kitty I also honestly, has her own pirate, you know, legacy. So I, yeah, I guess but he's you're... also not in Excalibur. I feel like he should be in one or the other. You know what I mean? I know. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the choice not to, though. And the comics are so strong that I don't want them to, to change them too much, right? Exactly. Well, I don't want it's them so to good merge right into like a nostalgia position. You know, right. I don't want them to just do it because that's the brand. I really no, like no. the, I really like the casts that they've, they've put together. So, um, I, I, tr- I trust them to kind of keep him where i discovered him which is to be one of the x-men like one Mm -hmm. of the core x-men uh so i i think that he should just keep on being a horny guy on the island who occasionally talks to god and or ghosts that sounds good to me honestly i i i think that that's a great thing for him to focus on it's like are you talking to god or ghosts or like hot girls right That's sort of what he does yeah exactly and i mean like krakoa is is basically a real free love kind of place so he's probably having a fantastic time and we should uh we should delve into that a little more maybe i would love yes i would love to see how nightcrawler's sex life is going on krakoa because that is such an explicit part of the book and he is the perfect point of view character for the way that aspect of their uh sociology operates well and it's it's such a what i love about it is it's it is that claremont vibe right because in the claremont 80s comics it does feel like everyone is fucking everyone else in the book yeah it's a big old dormitory it feels like everyone is having sex yeah so to just explicitly go yeah we all live on an island together now and we are kind of all having sex is like that is the X-Men to me on some level. It's always been this big kind of incestuous family of like people who live together, but are also in love and are also the only family that they each have. But also it's, it's a total pot of like boiling sexual angst and it's, it's just, it's good stuff. And I think that he has always been a good sort of pressure release valve. Um, He's fun. He keeps it light, but, by virtue of his appearance and his existence, he's always kind of has a lot to be upset about. So he has to keep it light. Yeah. And he's, I think for that same reason, he's allowed to be overtly sexual as well. Uh, yes. It's not the same. It's not the same as like Angel or, or, or you Gambit know, Frost or yeah, or Gambit. It's um, he is allowed to express sexuality in a way that is safe and kind of family friendly, both in the story and to the readers that he can be this kind of debonair ladies man. It's and there's cute. A it's old it. yeah, Hollywood. It's very cute. 
it's very cute until you're in the bedroom and then it's then it's happening and then uh yeah and i mean notably chuck austin did imply in an interview one time that nightcrawler has two penises that is a thing that chuck austin did circa the draco i don't believe that's canon um, i don't believe that's canon i don't support it i'm just saying (laughs) that i feel like somebody would have somebody would have said something by now (laughs) right no i was like at at the very least it would have come up i feel like at some point you know and, and but uh i'm i'm I personally am I'm glad that, that that's one that I'm glad was kept off panel if that was the intention. But uh yeah. Um I like the I like your point that he's your favorite character, but you're okay with him being a supporting character. See, I what I love about the X-Men is that they reveal it's like astrology. Like they reveal so much of our psychology by talking about them, even if like, you know, I don't necessarily believe that astrology is real in the sense of the stars having power or whatever. But I do think that sitting down and being like, oh, I'm such a Pisces. And then you are talking about it with someone. You actually just start doing talk therapy. And right. it's a jumping you off point. accidentally use a shorthand but for like, the way that you're feeling. Yeah, exactly. But like, I've known you for some years now. And you're like, you are someone who I would consider to be a happy supporting player. You know what I mean? Like, you're like a big wife guy. Oh, I'm a total wife guy. And yeah. so the idea, like... Kurt is 100% a wife guy. Like, I feel like part of the reason why they keep finding reasons to keep Kurt and Amanda apart is because if Kurt and Amanda were allowed to just, like, be together and be happy, all Kurt would want to do would be, like, hey, guys, this is my wife. She is a powerful sorceress. She used to rule Limbo. She's super hot. Um, She does magic. He would just never shut up about his hot sorceress wife. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of characters are denied uh, romantic resolution because of the the serialized because it could get boring, right? But he, in particular, seems like be, the way that he is tortured. Um, I don't think he's allergic to eventually being content the way that no. Cyclops and Wolverine will never be truly happy. <laughs> right. I think it's more that he would be so content that they're like, that wouldn't be interesting to us because it's less strong. It's like if he's just thrilled to tell you all about his sorceress Supreme wife, it's like, but what is Nightcrawler doing? Oh, you know, Nightcrawler's mostly retired. He uh, he is a stay-at-home dad, and uh, his wife is a magical superhero. Like, that feels like it's almost where it would go. He would just be sort of hanging yeah. out at his house. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's 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 the that's the deal if i have a kind of like a meta theory and i would love to uh i would love to write something with nightcrawler or even you know something with nightcrawler's name on the front but everything that would be awesome if that could happen somehow putting that out into the universe what you what you'll notice about all the nightcrawler solo solo stuff is that it's wildly different Mm -hmm. and i i think i told you when i wanted to do Nightcrawler just by way of sort of like wrapping up my 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 thoughts uh on this guy I don't think there's a character who is like this beloved while still being this inconsistent like there's yeah there's no defining story there's no not really there's not really defining story or you know he has defining moments in x-men stories uh, or he has relationships that are really enduring. Or like we were talking about with the aesthetic. You know, I think that so many people, other creators, I think, come to him through aesthetic. That's how you get a story about him being a demon. Or, you know, the the Dave Cochran solo stuff where he's like this kind of 
heavy metal magazine sci-fi swashbuckler. That mini is so fun. It's great. It's so great. But you would never say that's the definitive. No, it's like the one where Nightcrawler and Lockheed have interdimensional. Yeah, no. Right. So even though he's sort of the principal Nightcrawler creator, you could argue, you would never say like, here, read this. This is Nightcrawler. Right. Or like, I always think, you know, because I, I loved Excalibur so much, I'm always like, well, the cross time caper. And then I'm like, but that's about Rachel. That's not about Kurt. Like, you know, it's it's just but one of those his, things that's where... that's his value is he's your brother. You know, yeah. he's everybody's brother. And he's just, he's he's noble. And he's, you know, for you, he's he's unfailing. Uh, and uh, he's melancholy. And uh, he's the he's the X-Men who... He's the X-Men who wears the whole metaphor on his skin. So he'll never have... A normal life, which kind of maybe means he'll never have a starring role. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great note to kind of end the conversation on. So now I'm going to make you play my game, which is that uh, if Nightcrawler were a cast member on The Real Housewives of Krakoa, what would be his tagline in the opening credits? Okay, I thought about this. Uh, and I think that it's got to be, uh, Ich bin ein Bamf. Like a badass motherfucker. Yep. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say it because. Oh no, we're this is rated explicit on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so you're allowed to. We're not yes. on Apple Podcasts yet. We will be hopefully by the time you're listening to this, but it takes like ten days, so I don't know what's going on over there. I really like that. I think that's really cute. I I think that the the Bamf thing is like the fact that he has an identifiable sound effect that is unique to him is another aesthetic element that really is great. For the I mean, Wolverine has one too, right? With like snicked. Yeah, but they're fairly rare. I mean, you see them trying ones for Cyclops every once in a while. And they never quite work. And then like Psylocke was kind of her own sound in that she would just announce what she was doing to you. Like sure. the, this is the focus totality of my psychic powers, but it's not a sound. It's just like her. It's the same line. I think honestly, I think all of the Claremont characters. Oh do no, that. for sure, for sure. No, like <laughs> Cannonball is always like good thing I'm invulnerable when I'm blasting. You know, like they all have one. Um, but with Betsy, because that happened, like in the Siege Perilous storyline, like you didn't really have it beforehand, so it felt like in the you know three years that claremont remained on the book or whatever or not even gosh because he left in 91 but it felt like he put it in there a whole bunch just to really underline it for you yeah that worked on me that got me so hyped uh, i went i've said this before i'm like i love the expository claremont dialogue it is occasionally super ridiculous but when betsy says like this is my psychic knife the focus totality of my psychic power and with one touch it will render magneto insensate i'm like fuck yeah well like that sounds awesome yeah <laughs> um let's, let's see it so, let's like, go i have no problem with that or like when he has storm gives some really melodramatic like speech about like the elements she's about to summon or when rogue is like I can never touch anybody because one touch and I will drain the life force from the, you know, like I'm like, good. Tell me yeah. all about it. You know, it is aesthetic a lot of the time because it's a visual medium. Right. So yeah, it's a, a word I haven't used yet with Nightcrawler is iconic. And I think that we talked is. a lot about, we talked a lot about how he's a sort of a design first character. And, you know, in the original, you can go find the pitch and he was not German and he had a totally different personality he was supposed to be for the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, he was, he was going to be a DC character. And it was pretty different. But the design was the same. 
Uh, so I think that I don't think that uh, I'm being you know dismissive when I say that he's kind of a look first, and then they fi- and then they figured out everything else over time. But uh, I, you're right. Uh, Wolverine has snicked, and Spider-Man has thwip, and Nightcrawler has bamf, and then it's it's kind of hard to figure out what's number four. Right, like those uh, are the, those are the sound effects. It's crazy that Nightcrawler is that high on any list in Marvel because he's, you know, like I was, like I he's was never been a starring character. He just he's, never he's has beloved B lister. And you're not, you're not going to find a better B lister, but just don't, don't, don't push him much harder than that. Right. No, I think, that's, it gets I think weird. that's right. Well, speaking of really wonderful B listers, uh, thank you for joining me today, Daniel Kibblesmith. Um, I would love to tell the people where they can follow you online and uh, what comics work of yours they might enjoy. I feel like Loki and Nightcrawler probably have a lot of fan commonality. I feel like they're both characters that are very popular with um, female readers. They're both sort of trickstery characters so I, the loki ongoing you did is the first thing that jumps out to me as maybe something people should pick up but why don't yeah, you take it away yeah that's definitely what i would give to a that's definitely what i would give to a nightcrawler fan um and obviously i'm a huge fan of both characters um well if you wanted to find me online uh, i'm on all social media at kibblesmith uh, although i'm trying to use it less uh, so you can go to kibblesmith.com or you could go to kibblesmith.substack.com where, where i'm doing a newsletter uh, in, in hopes of, of doing a little bit less social media because I'm starting to suspect it might not be good for us. Um, what for, would make you think that? Yeah, oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and as for a work that people might enjoy, uh, if you feel less strongly about uh, Nightcrawler as I do, um, I definitely tried to put a lot of that same kind of humor and charm and swashbuckling energy into our run on Loki, which is out in paperback. Uh, Lockjaw is really fun and is also kind of a stealth D-man pilot. Uh, if you want to watch a <laughs> sort of down on his luck guy uh, getting getting over a breakup by getting a big teleporting dog, um, and uh, similar fun energy. I just did um, a Harley Quinn uh, digital first uh, for Harley Quinn Black, White, and Red uh, with Marguerite Savage. Uh, so that's um, also a very acrobatic kind of uh, jokester character. Playful character, wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and I would love to see you uh, you do something with Nightcrawler at some point. I think you'd be Let's do it. it. People are listening. Call us up. See, I'm just going to I'm going to turn this podcast into uh, into me deciding who should write what. And I'll just tell people <laughs> what <laughs> what they should write. Um, well, thank you again for being my guest. This is only the second episode. I appreciate you being in on the ground floor and uh, taking a chance on me and on this. And I. Um, I'd like to thank the listeners. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter at CerebroCast. You can follow me there at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. I have set up a Gmail account, CerebroCast at gmail.com, where you can send comments, questions, concerns. Uh, I'm probably not going to address any of them on the air, but I'm always uh, happy to hear from uh the fans which i'm assuming that we now have after two weeks um you never know um it i think it pays to uh to think big right so until next time everybody uh thanks for listening and bye now you say bye oh bye (laughs) (laughs) x-men x-men in the 21st century evil mutants led by magneto aim to destroy the world 
only 